Well, thank you, Father, that day by day we can depend upon you for our strength. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that it always brings us to gather as a church family. Thank you, Lord, for gifted musicians who help us express ourselves corporately together in praise and in meaningful words of tribute to you and what you've done for us. And now, Father, as we reach for our Bibles and we open them on our laps and we study your word together, would you please use, through the power of your Holy Spirit, use this time to strengthen us, to enlighten our minds, to give us insight that we would know how to live before you righteously and uprightly, that to let our light shine brightly in this dark world. We commit ourselves to you and to the hearing of the word at this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I suspect that you have heard the story about the little girl who was standing at the counter in the kitchen next to her mother when she was preparing dinner for Easter, and she had a big ham And before she took the ham and put it in the pan to put it in the oven, she reached for the butcher knife and she cut the end of the ham off, put it in the pan, and then put it in the oven. And the little girl said, Mommy, why why did you cut the end of the ham off? She said, Well, that's the way my mother taught me to do it. Well, a little while later, a few hours later, Grandpa and Grandma came over for dinner. And the little girl said, Grandma, when Mommy fixed the ham, she cut the end of it off. She said you taught her to do that. Why did you cut the end of the ham off? And Grandma looked at her and she said, well, you know, I always just set that aside and we made sandwiches and pea soup out of it, but that's the way my mom taught me to do it. Well, great-grandmother was still alive at the nursing home, so a little while later they went over for a visit and the little girl said, Granny, why did you teach your daughters to cut the end of the ham off? Why did She said, you know, when your paps and I were first married, I didn't have a pan big enough to fit the ham in. <laughs> And so I always cut the end of the ham off to fit it in the pan that I had. Well, isn't that interesting? I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. And as you turn to Matthew's gospel in chapter 3, I think that it's important for us to recognize how much we know and how much we do that was just passed on to us. I suspect that like cutting off the end of the ham, there are things about church world and things that we do that maybe we really don't understand the meaning and significance of it. And in fact, the reason that we do that or the reason that we believe that is because it's just what we've been taught. It's just the way mom and dad did it. It's how we grew up. And one of those topics that is of interest and that is comes out of our passage today in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 3. And if you're around fellowship at all, you know that we're working our way passage by passage through Matthew's Gospel. It's really an interesting Gospel. Remember, Matthew was an eyewitness account of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to get to his conversion. And when Jesus called him out of his tax collector's booth pretty soon here... Um, in the future, but um, Matthew was an eyewitness. Matthew was a Jew. He was writing to Jews, and so Matthew's gospel was written specifically with Jewish flavor. They understood the nuance. They understood the cultural context that Matthew was writing. The other thing that Matthew does so much of that we've been reminding you is he quotes over and over out of the Old Testament, and because the Jews studied the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. And now Matthew's task was to show them that right before their very eyes, Messiah was coming, the promised one 
was coming, and here he was, and he uses the Old Testament to prove and show how Jesus fulfills prophetic passages from the Old Testament, and here it is. And yet, like so many of us, not recognizing that Jesus has come or is coming again with his second coming, the Jews kind of miss it. And in fact, in just three years from where we are in our story today, we'll nail him to a cross, screaming and raging and hissing. And they crucify the very Son of God, who came to save them and give them life and give them life more abundantly. Well, we're in our chapter 3. We started in with this strange character, John the Baptist. And Matthew is writing to, to show the Jews who need a sign that Christ has come. He's gone through the genealogy of chapter 1 and showed them how Jesus is the Messiah through genealogical text proof. He showed them through the great stories of his birth. And now we have this forerunner, this rather strange individual, John the Baptist, who lived out in the wilderness, who was the forerunner of Christ, who spent his time shouting and proclaiming and preaching, prepare ye the way of the Lord. We talked about him last week. We, t- we showed how, even though he was a bit odd and he was a little bit strange, how Jesus said that he was greater than anybody who had ever lived and that he was remarkable. Well, we're going to read in chapter 3, and we're going to find out that in our passage today, um, the topic of baptism is what is at the fore here. And one of the things that we see is the, the very first words that we hear first person from our Lord Jesus. So far, for the first two chapters and the first part of chapter 3, we have uh, Matthew giving an account and second person about Jesus and what happened with Christ. Now, for the first time, we're going to hear the very first words of our Lord Jesus. I'll tell you what we ought to do. Let's read the, in, the chapter in its entirety so that we remember what we talked about with John the Baptist. We're jumping in, particularly with our text today, beginning with verse 11 to the end of the chapter. And what I want you to watch for are some questions. And in fact, we're going to build our message today around three questions that come out of the text. And by answering these questions, we're going to begin to understand what the meaning of the text is. We're not going to finish it. If you noticed in your bulletin, this is part one. And uh, remember, we've already thought about our lives. Next week's the 19th business meeting. The next week, two weeks from today, outreach Sunday. So next week is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday in the morning. The next week, the 25th, is Larry Moyer and our Evangelistic Outreach Sunday. So that means it'll be three weeks from today before we pick up part two on baptism. Because not only do we have some questions that are going to come out of the text, and one that we're not going to get to today but is really interesting, is after we study the baptism of John, that is a baptism for repentance, why in the world did Jesus get baptized? What is that all about? But then out of that come a number of questions that we would understand. How does baptism work in the church today? And it, does it really matter? And what's so significant about it? And why do we do it? And how do we do it? And I suspect that many of us think we know more than we know. And we're cutting off the end of the ham and we have no idea why. And so I hope you'll stay with me. And I hope that you'll dig in and, and pay attention to the Word of God here as we ask some very interesting questions and then try to answer them through the study of the Word together. Now let's read chapter 3 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. There's Matthew quoting from the Old Testament. 
Verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. And then, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to his baptism, parentheses, and, and he recognized that they were really disingenuous, close parentheses, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, he was telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that your heritage can do nothing for your standing in the presence of a holy God and overcome your sinfulness. Because they thought, because they were Jewish, that they had a natural right and access to God. And John the Baptist puts it in their face and says, it doesn't matter what nationality, it doesn't matter what your upbringing, it doesn't matter who you think you are. In fact, God can raise up his children out of stones out of the ground if he wants to. There's nothing special about you that gives you right access before God. A lot of people today think that because of something that they do or somebody that they are, they're confused. Verse 10, he goes on and gives this warning passage and he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. No doubt a warning to Israel, but also a general warning to all that the fruit of repentance be seen in our lives or else there is a consequence. Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, in fact, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee, verse 13, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? You see, John was confused about this. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And there it is, the very first words of our Lord Jesus. Fitting, isn't it, that Jesus says something, as he often does, and you have to say to yourself, now what in the world does he mean by that? We'll talk a little bit more about this later, another week, but look what Jesus... You you can imagine John's surprise when Jesus comes to him and he says, let me be baptized by you. And John says, wait a minute, my baptism is temporary. You're going to see that in a minute as well, that the people who were baptized by John the Baptist get re-baptized in the name of Jesus later on. That's kind of interesting. What's that all about? And Jesus still wants to come and be baptized by John. And when John tries to stop him and says, no, you baptize me, Jesus says, no. And this is what he says. He says, let it be so now. So that's a strong, emphatic statement. It's it's God's will right now. Let's do this. For thus it is fitting for us. So we know it was the right thing to do. And Jesus says it was to fulfill all righteousness. 
You know, Bible students don't all agree. What did Jesus mean by that? The text doesn't make it clear for us, so we can only speculate. But we know that Jesus believed it was the right thing to do. And in fact, because he did it, it was the right thing to do. And it was to fulfill some kind of a statement of his righteousness by entering the waters of John's baptism. Well, we'll get to that eventually a little bit more. But I wanted to kind of get you thinking as we read through the passage. And then he, the pronoun there, he, at the end of verse 15, is John the Baptist. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What an interesting scene, isn't it? you got this hairy... Wilderness prophet, after 400 silent years. And he comes crying out with a loud voice, a two-part message, repent and prepare, repent and prepare. I'd like us to begin this morning by covering a little bit of ground that we reviewed last week and touched upon, but I want to make sure it's clear to us, and we're not just cutting off the end of the ham, but is what, number one, question number one out of our passage today What was the significance of John's baptism? What was John's baptism all about? Why, if you needed to be re-baptized in the name of Jesus later on, was John exercising a mode of baptism? What are the ramifications of that, and why did he do that? Now let's look at verse 11 as we kind of use this part for our text. We notice right away that John says some things that help us understand a little bit about what he was doing. He says, I baptize you, verse 11, with water for repentance. All right? So let's just stop there and understand the language a little bit. The first thing you need to understand on the topic of baptism is that when you read the word baptize, that it's not really a real word. All right? It's, it's a transliteration. Do you know what that is? Here's how it works. So like, um, oh, I don't know, um, uh, uh, back in like 1400, 1500, 1600 in there, long time ago, all right, when the Bible's being translated into English, you know that the Bible was written down, like when Paul wrote and Matthew wrote, they wrote mainly in, in a form of Greek, and, and some in Aramaic in our New Testament. That's what is originally given to us in. Okay, when the Holy Spirit moved and these men wrote, it was in the Greek language. Essentially, think of the New Testament as written in Greek and the Old Testament as written in Hebrew. It wasn't written in English. So somewhere along the line, somebody had to translate it from Greek into, you know, German, French, Portuguese, English. All right? And so by the time it was being translated, our New Testament being translated into English, you need to know that the state, like the Church of England, for example, ran the church. They ran the church and the church ran the state. So they were basically one and the same. And so the church leaders ran the country and the country leaders kowtowed to them and so forth. And the king was was ruled by the church and mandated and, and it was kind of a law what you had to believe. And by then, you see, in early centuries, and this is something we'll talk about in three weeks on mode of baptism, in the earliest centuries, there's, there's almost no record of anything but baptism by immersion. 
and dunking. And it was based upon a baptism like John's that was probably based on a Jewish tradition from the temple where they've excavated baptismal um, tanks, basically, divots where they baptized. And it was a ritual of washing and cleansing based upon Old Testament teaching that was a temporary thing. When you came into worship, you were baptized, as well as proselytes and those who converted to Judaism were baptized. And it, and, it, and it imaged a washing away of your sin. And it was based upon that. So back to our translators. They're translating and they read in the Greek and they come to a Greek word that sounds something like this. Baptizo or baptissimo. Alright? And the word means to plunge into, to immerse, to be covered up, to dip down into. That's what the word means. And so they could have easily and safely translated it in our passage in our New Testament. Every time it uses the word baptism, it would have been, if they translated the word into English, they would have used a word like immerse, plunge into. So John was immersing down by the Jordan, that's the word baptizo. At the end of our message today, we might reference from uh, Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. And remember that rich man that died and then the poor beggar Lazarus that, that tried to pick up crumbs at his table and he died too. And then the, the rich man is there's a great golf fix. It wasn't too long ago we were talking about this. And the poor man is in Abraham's bosom. He's in paradise. The rich man, he's in utter chaos and fire and torment. And he can see across the chasm and he begs Father Abraham to let the poor beggar Lazarus, whom he paid no attention to when he begged at his tables... Wouldn't even give him crumbs hardly. And he, the rich man who was in torment begged Abraham to have the poor man do what? Dip the tip of his finger in water and bring and touch his lips. That's how much in torment. Do you know what the word in that passage for dip is in Greek? Baptismo, baptismo. Dip it down into. Dip your finger down into it. Immerse, plunge into Become enveloped by is the idea. Well, the Bible translators were worried about something. They were mainly employed by the the government church. And by then, apart from the early, after the early centuries were over, the church had turned and at a council in about the 1300s, the Catholic church decided to start sprinkling and everybody was sprinkling and the Church of England was sprinkling. And so if they wrote immerse then it would be against all of what that was believed and taught and practiced by the state church, they might get in trouble. So here's what they did. They just took and took the word baptismo, and they took the Greek letter, and they turned it into an English letter. Baptismo. Alpha, beta in the Greek. Beta, that sounds like B in the English. Beta, B. Uh, alpha is the next letter. Baptismo. Uh, A. Pi. P. Baptismal. They transliterated and they created a word. So now when you read baptism or baptized or baptize, what does it mean? Well, everybody can just decide what it means because it's a transliterated word. It was never translated into English. Except like it, I said in the Luke passage with the rich man and Lazarus, there they translated it to dip. To dip his finger down into. They didn't translate it to baptize his finger and bring and put water on my lips. It's the same exact word. You follow what I'm saying? So that's one of the things you need to understand as we're studying this passage, that as we read verse 11, that John says, I baptize you with water. 
Okay, so we know it's a water baptism and it's for repentance. We talked last week about how repentance is an agreeing with God about our sinfulness, recognizing my sinfulness, having a change of heart and mind so that I turn away from it and I turn towards righteousness. I turn away from my sin and I turn towards righteousness. So look up at verse 6 and you can see a little bit more of a clue of, okay, so we're trying to answer just question number one so far. What was the significance of John's baptism? He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. In verse 6 he says that he was baptizing by him in the river Jordan. People were coming up there from all over the place, being baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, so there's this water baptism that is a plunging into the water by John. They're in the Jordan River. That's a clue. And it's symbolic of an external testimony of something that they have professed with their mouths and had a heart change. I'm no longer walking in sin. I agree with God. I have a fear of God. I recognize that Jesus is coming soon and I want to walk in righteousness. And they would enter the waters of baptism and John's baptism was a testimony of a repentant heart. At least way of life. Does your Christianity, by the way, show? Is there a difference between who you are following Christ and who you were before Christ? I'll tell you, there really is no good example at all in Scripture of a person who comes to Christ, repents of their sin, turns, enters into eternal life, and just keeps on living the way they always lived. That doesn't mean that we can't sin. We do indeed. In fact, John said in 1 John that he who says he has no sin is a liar. Everybody sins. And in fact, we have that wonderful verse, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a good thing. But the fruit of repentance, the newness of life, this idea, and we will see it in Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul uses the word baptism in a spiritual way, to raise up, to walk in newness of life. At some level, John was calling people to recognize their sinfulness before a holy God, to admit that sinfulness, and to turn away from the old ways, and to walk in righteousness, because Jesus was coming, and He was going to take over their lives. It was a preparatory gospel. It wasn't a gospel for eternal life. There's another passage that sheds light on what John's baptism was. And it's in Acts chapter 19. It's in Acts chapter 19. And the Apostle Paul talks about it. Turn with me in your Bible. It will not hurt you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 19. And I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says, shedding light on this. Acts chapter 19. And this is kind of an interesting passage here. Let's begin with verse 1. I'm going to reference a guy named Apollos, who was one of the pastors that ministered uh, in Corinth. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Ephesus is the city where the church was that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to. Ephesus, Ephesians, they're connected. Ephesus is a city. An Ephesian is someone who lived in Ephesus. All right? And Ephesus, there he found some disciples. Okay? He doesn't define them. Now look at verse 2. And he said to them, 
Paul says to these disciples, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, look what they said. And they said, No, in fact, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We don't even, who's the Holy Spirit? We don't know about Him. All right? And he said, Into what then were you baptized? Into what were you plunged? What immersed? What took over your life? And they said, Look at this, into John's baptism. So here were some people who encountered John sometime before this, had entered into John's repentance baptism for their sin, but they didn't know anything else, and they didn't catch up with the fact that Paul was now preaching a Christ who had already returned to heaven, had already been to the cross and bore their sin, had already risen on the third day, affirming his deity, had already created a new gospel by grace through faith in Christ alone, where he was the perfect substitute. And he came and died for our sin. And this is what Paul is preaching all over this Asia, part of the country here. And they said, we haven't heard this stuff. We only got baptized by John. Now look at Paul's responses. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And they were about 12 men in all. And and for two years, he stays there and he teaches them. You see, at this time, in this apostolic era, when the, Ho- the Holy Spirit was, it evidenced himself with signs and wonders. It's a really interesting concept here. But what the Apostle Paul says is that as John, they entered into a baptism by John. They See what they said? In a baptism of repentance. But notice what else it says in verse 4. As Paul explained John's baptism in verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, okay, of sin, telling the people to believe in the one to come after him, that is Jesus. So John's baptism, answering question number one, finally, is that it was a baptism of repentance and it was a baptism looking forward to Christ. It was saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is coming. Now back to Matthew chapter 3, and in just a couple minutes, let's wrap up our message for today, and then we'll pick it up three weeks from today. Lord willing. Matthew chapter 3, back to verse 11, where we started in. I baptize you, I immerse you, I plunge you in with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. This wonderful statement John makes, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now question number two. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Question number two, so what in the world is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Okay, we have John's baptism straight and the reason, and I want you to remember this for three weeks. The whole reason I took time to make sure we kind of thought through John's baptism of repentance for sin is because of question number four that we're not going to get to today is, why in the world did Jesus partake of John's baptism? If John's baptism is a repentance baptism, if John's baptism is one that looked forward to believing in Christ, how weird is it that Jesus would come to John? See what I mean? You've been cutting off the end of the ham. You don't know why you believe this stuff. You don't know what these baptisms are for. I don't know what they're for. We're studying together, trying to figure it out. But I think that's a great question, don't you? Why would Jesus come to John and say, baptize me? With John's baptism. When it's a baptism that's temporary, you've got to come three weeks from today. By then I'll have a good answer. All right, I have it in my notes. Five reasons. It's right here. Look at that in orange. Five reasons. See, that's why you're not getting to it yet. 
You just can't wait to come back in three weeks, can you? You didn't know talking about baptism and cutting off ham could be so good. It's like, I don't even know, you know, what we're talking, what are we talking about? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's answer this question quickly. Let's use the Bible. That's a good deal. All right. Question number one, what was the significance of John's baptism? Now question number two, what in the world is John talking about, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And then he says, the baptism of fire. I see at least three different baptisms that he's talking about here. Although it could be, it's difficult to tell by the language, if the baptism by the Holy Spirit and fire is talking about one baptism. Now what do we do with that? Well, let's look at our Bibles. You need to know that in here he says it clearly. There is a baptism by the Holy Spirit. Our question number two is, what is that baptism? Um, if you were to look at Mark's gospel, chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8, Mark does not say baptism by the Holy Spirit and fire. He just says in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, that he's coming and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, period. It's going to be a baptism by the Holy Spirit. So let's answer this question. And to do this, let's look in our Bibles again. And let's turn to Acts chapter 1 because it is specifically answered for us. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? We will at least lay a foundation for understanding what this baptism is. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, this is just... This is just literally hours before the Lord is going to ascend back up into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. Acts chapter 1. He's going to go back up into heaven where he is now, but he's coming again according to this promise in Acts chapter 1. But look what he says at the beginning. Okay, we'll jump in at verse 4. He's with uh, some of his disciples and apostles. And while staying with them, apostles and disciples, he, that's Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John, that's John the Baptist, verse 5, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There it is. That's that promised baptism that John said Jesus would bring. But you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now turn the page to chapter 2. And in fact, 10 days has gone by. 10 days goes by from where Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem, don't leave, because what John talked about and what I promised, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was coming, is going to happen not many days from now. 10 days later, here's what happens. It's on the day of Pentecost, it's verse 1 of chapter 2, and when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, his disciples and followers, apostles there, and suddenly there came from heaven... Imagine this, a sound like a rushing mighty wind, a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all, here it is, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I think that it is safe to conclude that what Jesus is talking about is this baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1, 4, and 5 has now happened in 2, verse 4. 
He calls it the filling of the Holy Spirit in 2.4. The idea is you've been immersed in, you plunge into, filled up with, covered up with, the Holy Spirit is now dwelling. This is something Jesus talked about in his earthly ministry, isn't it? In his high priestly prayer in John 17 and other passages, he talked about how he would send, he was going to go away, but he would send a comforter. He talked about how through the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit, greater works would go on than he had even done. All around the world. He had done it just regionally. He only affected a few lives for three years. He's talking now about centuries of ministry through the Holy Spirit who was going to come and work through his church. So it was a greater scope of ministry that he would happen. And this, Bible students are essentially in agreement on this, that this is the beginning of the church. This is the beginning of a whole new era where the Holy Spirit now comes and he fills or indwells Through this baptism of the Holy Spirit, the believers in the Lord Christ. It had to be pretty wild. He's like... And you can kind of picture the light and the fire splits up and it says it comes upon each of them and there were at least 12 of them. And can't you see them glowing and it's like fire on them? And it was really loud. There was evidently thunder because look what happens. It says... Now they're, uh, and they, they were all filled, verse 4 again, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, at the sound, so this filling of the Holy Spirit in this room where these disciples were, where they came overcome with it, as it were, like fire, it was a loud sound with wind, all right, and it says, And the sound was so loud, verse 6, that the multitude came together and they were bewildered when they came together because each one was hearing them, the disciples, now speak in his own language. We don't have time to to go down the road of figuring out what the Holy Spirit gift of tongues is today. That's an interesting question too. But notice, and as, as is regularly emphasized in the New Testament, that when the Holy Spirit gave someone the gift to speak in tongues, it was not jabber, jabber, um, ecstatic utterances. It was always a real language. And that's exactly what's happening here. He gave them the ability to speak a language. And there were people from all around the world of that day. You can see that. And they said, are these not all Galileans who are speaking? How do they know? our language. How is it, verse 8, that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome. So some of those Galileans were speaking Italian. It's like, how did that happen? Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. God did a mighty work by baptizing them with the Spirit. He filled them with His Spirit. And they had a power to exercise spiritual gifts and to preach the gospel in different languages so that the gospel then went all over the world and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But verse 13, others mocked, saying, they're just filled with new wine, they're drunk. They're a mess. Well, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is described right here. That Jesus promised. We will, we will retouch this and talk about, okay, then if I have been following Christ for 33 years and I have never had fire come over me, am I filled with the Spirit? We'll talk about this a little bit further. But let's conclude with a third question very quickly back in Matthew chapter 3. 
That is a description of the filling of the Spirit. What was the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It was the Spirit of God coming to indwell those disciples and give them a special power for ministry. And it was the beginning of the church age. And yes, today the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We'll expand upon that when we have more teaching time. To wrap it up today and to challenge ourselves in conclusion... Back in verse 11, let's just look at the other. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I already referenced the fact that by the language there, it's difficult to say if he's bringing up a third kind of baptism. Okay, we already have John's baptism by water. What was the significance of that? An outward testimony of an inward heart direction change. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire is that one some Bible students believe, based upon what we just read in Acts chapter 2, that this tongues of fire that overcame them, that that's what he's talking about, and it's one and the same baptism. I can't prove that that's not true. But I'll tell you, I don't think that. I think that based upon the context of our passage, notice what John is talking about when he talks about this baptism of fire. What's significant about verse 11 is that verse, it comes after verse 10 and before verse 12. So let's look at 10 and 12. That's what I mean by context. In verse 10 is where he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, he's talking about the fruit of a repentant life, is cut down and thrown into what? What's the next word? Into fire. So John's talking about fire here a little bit, isn't he? Now, skip verse 11 and go to verse 12. This is that incredible image of our powerful Lord Jesus, who's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, he will gather his wheat into his barn, and the chaff he will, what's the next word? Burn. You see, Jesus is a separator. Jesus is a divider. He said that about himself. He came to divide families. He divides everybody, except the church he unifies. We'll talk more about that as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Here Jesus divides everybody into two categories. You're either the wheat or you're the chaff. You're either the real deal and you have the fruit of righteousness in you or you do not. And he takes his winnowing fork and he throws it up in the air and it filters down. The good grain stays. The chaff blows to the side. He sweeps it up. They put it in a scoop shovel and they take and they throw it in the fire. Fire, it burns. So in verse, in verse 10, he's talking about fire. In verse 12, he's talking about fire. It seems to me that it's, that it's not illogical to think that, that Jesus, who he talks about with his winnowing fork, throwing the chaff in the fire, is going to immerse in fire those who reject him, those who do not live out the fruit of a righteous life and their testimony of salvation in Christ. That's what I think this baptism is. Fire is always used of judgment. We don't have time to go to the Luke passage with the rich man and Lazarus again. But there, that rich man was baptized in fire, wasn't he? He was immersed in fire to the point he said, just put a drop of cold water on my lips. In 2 Peter chapter 3, there's a warning of a coming judgment. God promised he would never destroy the earth again by water, but he will destroy it with what? Fire. And the whole earth is going to be baptized in fire. In Revelation chapter 20, if your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, what happens? And everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will do what? 
They will be cast out into the eternal lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist, Satan himself, all of his demons, sin and death, it's all cast into the eternal lake of fire. Hades and hell is going to be cast into the eternal lake of fire. You're going to be baptized for eternity in fire. Immersed, plunged into, surrounded by, identified with. That's what I think that baptism is. John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. We don't have to worry about that today because we have another baptism. That's the Matthew 19 passage of making disciples and going all over the world, making disciples, teaching them to obey all things and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a new baptism. It's another baptism we haven't got to yet. But I think these are pretty interesting questions. What's the significance of John's baptism? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what is the baptism by fire? Well, we've just started in and we must stop. Question. Do you worry about the baptism of fire? You ought to. The Bible tells us that that God gave his only son to die in our place out of his love for us so that we do not have to be baptized by fire. And we can enter into newness of life and we can experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit and have a new life, a transformed life. As we study these things, make sure you stop and apply them to yourself. Make sure you ask yourself where you fit in the story. Are you bearing the fruit of a righteous life? I hope so. Let's bow in prayer, please. Father, thank you so much for the teaching of the word. Thank you for the challenge that it is to us. Give us understanding of these things, Lord. They are not without their question. Thank you, Father, for the perfect lamb, the one to whom you said when he came up out of the water, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. One who finally, completely satisfied you. Thank you that we can be identified with this lamb and his work at the cross and that you can look at us and be satisfied. Father, open our eyes to these truths. Take your word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and help people have understanding and growth that we would understand our Bibles and we would understand the significance of these baptisms and how they apply to our lives. As we go from here, Father, help us to let our light shine in a, in a dark world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.